revised our passage today, I thought I might start us out this morning by asking a few Bible trivia questions. And actually, maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I'm willing to take more risk. I'm going to go out on a limb here and ask for some participation. Now, I may regret this because either A, no one will say anything, it'll be really awkward, or B, everyone will chime in at the same time and it's going to be mass chaos. But again, I'm getting older, I'm willing to live on the edge, so here we go. So I'm going to start with a relatively easy one. If you know the answer, you can just shout it out. How many books are there in the Bible? I heard a lot of right answers. That's encouraging. 66, 39 the Old Testament, 27 the New Testament. Now this next question is a little bit harder, but I'm going to put some parameters on. So I'm going to ask you the question, and then I'm going to get the parameters, and then I'll ask you to respond, all right? So the question is, what's the longest book in the Bible? Now I'm going to specify what I'm asking for here. I'm not asking which book has the most chapters. I'm not asking which book has the most verses. I'm not even asking which book has the most words in the English language. I'm asking according to the original, or the, to the count in the original language. So Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. Which book is the longest? So at this point, if you know the answer, go ahead and shout it out. What's the longest book in the Bible? Psalms. I hear Psalms. I heard an Isaiah. Oh, look at that. The pastor coming through. Nice job. The answer is, what's that? You got, thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. The answer actually is Jeremiah with 33,000 and two words in the original Hebrew. Genesis is second with 32,046. Psalms, which has the most chapters and the most verses, checks in third. 30,147. By the same parameters, word count in the original language, what is the shortest book in the Bible? Go ahead, say it if you know it. Haven't heard it yet. I heard a second John. That's very close. That should be a clue. It is third John. Good job. Yeah. So actually, third John has more verses than second John, but fewer words. All right. Let's go to the book of Acts. This should be our wheelhouse. We've been studying this for a couple months. We should be ready for this one. All right. So this goes all the way back to chapter one. What was the name of the disciple who was selected to take the place of Judas amongst the other 11 apostles? Matthias, I heard it right away. Nice job. One last question. It's actually related to our passage today. And the reason why I'm doing this whole exercise, all right, in what city were Jesus' followers first called Christians? Antioch. Now, if you've read ahead in preparation for this sermon this morning, you already knew the answer to that question, in which case I'm going to give you a figurative gold star. Not only because you knew the answer to the question, but because you read ahead. So you can pick up your figurative gold star at the figurative gold star station on the way out the door. But for the rest of us, I would just say this. The first place that Christians were called Christians was Antioch. Now, maybe that's not what you would expect when most of us think of New Testament cities in which the churches were located, that's probably not where we would run. I think most of us would run to either Jerusalem or cities that are specifically addressed in New Testament letters, like Ephesus or Philippi or Thessalonica or Rome. But what we learn in our passage today is that it's actually Antioch, located in the Roman province of Syria, 310 miles away from Jerusalem, where followers of Christ were first called Christians. And truth be known, that trivia fact is probably the thing that people tend to remember most about our passage today. But what I'm going to argue this morning is that Acts 11, 19-30 is valuable far beyond its trivia content. In fact, I would contend that the substance of the passage itself is far more helpful than just knowing where followers of Christ were first called Christians. Because in the substance of this passage, not only do we learn that followers of Christ were first called Christians in Antioch, more importantly, I think we see how Christians actually lived. In other words, the church at Antioch is not just an answer to a trivia question. It's part of a picture of what Christianity should look like lived out. 
From what we read here in Acts 11, it seems that the church in Antioch was a vibrant, growing church. And so in light of that reality, the question I'm interested in asking this morning is not the trivia question. In which city were Jesus' followers first called Christians? Rather, the question I want us to consider this morning is this. What does it look like to actually live like a Christian? That's a far more important question. So I said, let's go ahead and stand now. Acts 11, 19 to 30. Acts 11, 19 to 30. You can follow along with the words on the screen. You can listen as I read. Or you can follow along in your own Bibles. But the Word of God says this. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves of the value of God's Word. Starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So again, I think Acts 11, 20, or 19 to 30 is probably best known for the trivia answer that we find in verse 26. But it's the context around verse 26 I find to be more helpful. Because in the context of verse 26, we learn about the church at Antioch. And what we learn, I think what we'll discover this morning, is really encouraging. Because the church at Antioch seems to indeed be intent on following Jesus. And so again, the question I want us to think about this morning is not the trivia question of where Jesus' followers were first called Christians, but rather the deeper question of what does it actually look like to live as a Christian? And I think the church at Antioch helps us to answer that question. Now having said that, we should probably give a little bit of background related to the church at Antioch and related to the city of Antioch in order to set the stage here. As I mentioned, the city of Antioch was located in the Roman province of Syria, It was situated on the Rontes River, about 15 miles to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and Alexandria. At the time of the events of this passage, it likely had a population of around 500,000 people, which was a huge city in the ancient world. It was known to be a cosmopolitan city, with people from different languages and nations and backgrounds mixing together. Greeks and Syrians, Phoenicians and Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, Indians. It was a multicultural city, and no doubt a city with many religious beliefs as well. And it was into that city that the truth of the gospel was injected and the church in Antioch was born. The picture that we have of the church here in Acts 11 is indeed, I think, a beautiful one. Now, of course, this should go without saying that the church in Antioch no doubt had its flaws. As we've said before, and we will say again, on this side of heaven, there is no such thing as a perfect church. But having said that, as reported here in Acts 11, there is much to commend in the church at Antioch. And in light of the commendation that we could give to them, again, the question I want us to consider this morning is not the trivia question, but rather the question of what does it look like to actually live as a Christian? I think the church at Antioch helps us to answer that question. 
Next, I would say there are four answers we can put forth from the church at Antioch to answer the question, what does it look like to actually live as a Christian? The first, I think, is this. To live out our Christian faith is to point others to the good news of Christ. What does it look like to live as a Christian? My first answer would be to point others to the good news of Christ. Now, the truth is, we don't know if this title of Christian was given to followers of Christ in Antioch as a compliment or as an insult. By definition, the word Christian means belonging to Christ or follower of Christ. It's possible that name was given as a compliment or as a way of simply identifying the church at Antioch as being distinct from Judaism. But it's also possible the name was meant as an insult. This would not be an uncommon way of thinking in the ancient world, that they would give a moniker to a group to try to mock them. That the title Christian might have been given to them in order to mock their obsession or concern with the Christ. But either way, the fact that they were given the moniker Christian tells us something about the church in Antioch. Namely, they must have talked a lot about the Christ. Nicknames like Christian don't just come about randomly. For example, consider the case of Atlanta Falcons superfan Carolyn Freeman. The 63-year-old Freeman is known for going to Atlanta Falcons football games dressed in elaborate bird costumes. And not just some games, mind you. Home games, road games, playoff games, even the Super Bowl when they made it a few years back. If the Falcons are playing, she's almost always there and she's always dressed like a bird. And her fandom extends far beyond the stands. Her house, both inside and out, is decorated in the team's signature red, white, black, and gray colors. Furthermore, even on non-game days, Freeman only wears red, white, black, and gray 365 days a year. So there are fans, and then there are people like Carolyn Freeman who are fanatics. And given her status as a fanatic, it's no surprise that Freeman is known as the Bird Lady or Queen Falcon. Those are nicknames she has earned. She's not known as the Bird Lady because she dresses up like a giant pumpkin. She's not known as Queen Falcon because she's a huge fan of the Green Bay Packers. She's known as Bird Lady because she dresses up like a bird. She's known as Queen Falcon because she's obsessed with the Atlanta Falcons. In the same way then, whether they earn the nickname as a compliment or as an insult, the fact that followers of Christ in Antioch were called Christians tells us that they weren't talking about Zeus or some generic god. They were labeled as Christians presumably because they were regularly talking about the Christ. And by the way, we should probably clarify something here. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means the Messiah, the Anointed One. It's a reference to the one who was promised in the Old Testament who would come and rescue the people from their sin. And it seems obvious that the church at Antioch, given the title that was ascribed to them, must have regularly been talking about the Christ. And this presumption is confirmed by what we read in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now in verses 19 and 20, we again see some of the confusion related to Jewish-Gentile relationships that's characterized the last few chapters. Scattered by persecution to locations such as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, some were apparently sharing the good news of Christ with Jewish people only, which would again indicate a lack of understanding of the gospel's reach. But others, some anonymous men from Cyprus and Cyrene, were preaching the good news to Hellenists also. Now in this context, Hellenists seems to be a reference to Greek-speaking Gentiles who lived in Antioch. But Jewish-Gentile confusion aside, which we'll return to again in chapter 15, the larger point remains this. The church in Antioch was preaching the good news of Jesus. This preaching is how the church was established, and presumably it's also how followers of Christ in Antioch earned the nickname 
Christian. For the church in Antioch then, to be a follower of Christ was to talk about Jesus. It was to talk about the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the One who would rescue the people from their sin, the One who died on the cross for our sins and rose again, the One who will come again and make things right. Or to put it in summary form, it seems evident that the church in Antioch talked regularly and frequently about Jesus as the Christ. And in noting that, I think it's worth asking this question. Do we talk about Christ in the same way and with the same frequency? Let me ask the question to you this way. If someone were to follow you around for a week, or for a month, or for a year, and they were listen to you talk about the things that you talk about most, and watch the things that you were most obsessed with, what nickname would they give to you? Would they call you a Christian because you're always talking about the Christ? Or would they give you a nickname related to your love for the Huskers because that's what you talk about most? Or a nickname related to your kids because they're your true obsession? Or something related to your job or your accomplishments since you're always talking about the things you do? Or might they they even give you a nickname related to your desire to be liked and approved by others since your focus seems to be on earning others' approval? Or would they even come to the conclusion that you deserved a nickname related to politics or social media or current happenings or if you're a student, your extracurricular activities? What nickname would they ascribe to you based on what you talk about most? If I'm honest, that question is a little bit scary. Because I'm afraid that for some, maybe they would give me a nickname related to my family. Or even to something more trivial like Iowa State sports. But here's the thing. If we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it seems obvious to me that we should regularly talk with others about who he is and what he's done. I mean, think about it this way. If you find a bakery that you like, or a restaurant that you love, or a movie that you particularly enjoyed, or if there's a game that you watched that was particularly riveting, you talk about those things. I know this to be true because I talk about those things, and I also know this to be true because every Sunday in the hallways, this is what I hear people talking about. It's what we do. But if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if Jesus rose from the dead, and if Jesus really is the Christ, it seems to me that we should want to talk about Jesus out of appreciation for what he's done, but also because we want others to know him. Now, in saying that, I'm just going to go ahead and confess something this morning. In the last couple of years, I don't feel like I've done this the way I want to. There have been periods in my life where I feel like I've been reasonably good at sharing Christ with lost people, but lately, I feel like I've not been as intentional. And as much as I want, want to, might want to give myself a pass based on life circumstances or stage of life, I was convicted by this passage this week. I want to be more intentional in this area. I want to be more bold and courageous in pointing others to the hope found in Jesus. I want to live in such a way that the good news of Christ just tumbles out of my mouth everywhere I go because that's my passion. I want to be the type of person that if someone were to follow me around for a week, they would say, oh yeah, he's obviously a Christian because he is obsessed with Christ. But I don't know that they could say that now. Maybe you find yourself in a similar boat. If you do, here's the good news for both of us. It's not too late. If we're still breathing, we still have a chance to share the good news of Christ with lost people. And I'm convinced that the more we reflect on what Jesus has done, that he died for us, that he rose from the dead, and the more we rest in the approval that we have from him, that there's no longer any condemnation for us, and thus we do not have to seek the approval of others, I'm convinced the more we meditate on those things, the more we will be quick to point others to the hope found in Christ. 
the more we will be like the church at Antioch, speaking Christ wherever we go. To live out the Christian faith is to point others to the good news of Christ. This is one of the lessons we learned from the church at Antioch. But secondly, I think we can say this, to live out the Christian faith is also to encourage other believers and help them grow in their faith. We see this in verses 21 to 26. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I love the description of Barnabas that's found in verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's the type of description that I would hope my kids, with sincerity, could one day put on my gravestone. I would hope they would say to me, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. But aside from that description of Barnabas, which is a great one, I also love what Barnabas does in this passage. Now, clearly he arrives in Jerusalem because the church or arrives from Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem was curious as to what was happening in Antioch. They'd heard that some were coming to the Lord, and so they send Barnabas to investigate. And Barnabas' response when he sees the work of God was to be glad and to exalt the brothers and sisters in Antioch, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He even goes to the trouble of tracking down Saul and Tarsus and bringing him to Antioch so the two of them can teach the church, which apparently they did for at least a year. If you were to summarize Barnabas' actions in a word then, you would probably use one word, encouragement, which makes sense given that Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. According to Acts, 46, four, Acts 4, verse 36, Barnabas' real name was actually Joseph. But because he was so encouraging, he was given the name of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Not to say this, his encouragement of the church in Acts 11 is encouraging to me. I want to be more like Barnabas. I love that he shows up and he sees the work of God and it makes him glad. Instead of being skeptical or jealous or wishing he could have been there to be there for the work, he instead rejoices in the grace of God, and he exhorts his fellow Christians, keep pressing on. Barnabas encourages them in their faith. And what I'm going to argue this morning is this, we all need more Barnabases in our life. I'll say this, one of the great blessings of this church body is that we have some people who are really gifted in the area of encouragement that are part of this church I won't mention them by name this morning because I don't want to embarrass them. I'm just telling you, some of the greatest encouragers I've ever known are part of this church body. And when I run into those people who have the gift of encouragement, I always leave feeling more refreshed and more uplifted. And more importantly, their encouragement spurs me on to want to follow Christ more. Now for the record, I'm not talking about flattery or insincere praise here. I'm talking about genuine encouragement in Christ in which someone sees something that God's doing in your life, and they encourage you in that area to try to keep you pressing on towards Christ. That type of encouragement is worth its weight in gold. Listen, I know we live in a social media world in which everyone thinks that they have their right to give an opinion and offer up a critique. And without question, there's a place for opinions and critiques. I wouldn't be where I am without brothers and sisters who had the courage to correct me, rebuke me, get me back on the right path. So hear me, there's definitely a place for correction, feedback, critique, all of that. 
But I think we can all agree, especially in light of this social media world that we live in, the world needs more Barnabases. We need more people who are encouraging. We need more people who rejoice with us when they see the Lord at work. We need more people who will take a year out of their lives to teach us how to follow Christ. And so to that end, I would just ask you this. Do you have a Barnabas in your life? And are you being a Barnabas to others? To have a Barnabas means that there's someone in your life who's constantly encouraging you to follow Jesus. A person who celebrates your victories in Christ with you. A person who takes the time to show you this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do you have that person in your life? If not, let me encourage you this morning, find that type of person. And if you can't find that type of person, let us know. Because I think a huge part of our job as pastors is to equip more Barnabases who can then help others. But not only do we need a Barnabas, I would say this also, we should also be a Barnabas. To be a follower of Christ should mean that we are quick to see evidences of grace in other believers. To be a Barnabas means that not only do we see those evidences of grace, but we are also quick to point them out and exhort our fellow Christians and encourage them in their faith. Now, I think sometimes we hold back encouragement because we don't want people around us to get too big of a head. But in my experience, most people aren't in danger of having too big of a head when it comes to godly, Christ-centered encouragement. Instead, most people I know are starving for encouragement. They are in a dry and weary land. They feel discouraged and tired. And what they really need is someone just to tell them, keep pressing on. I see God at work in you. Keep staying faithful. Now again, to be clear, I'm not talking about encouragement here that is flattery or insincere praise. I'm not talking about encouragement that's based on achievements either. Like, oh, you're so good at basketball, or you did so great on that test, or you're such a successful business person. No, what I'm talking about is seeing evidences of God's grace seeing God at work, and then pointing out that grace in a person's life so as to encourage them to keep pressing on. We are in desperate need of that type of encouragement, and the people around us are in need of that encouragement too. So let me just encourage you this morning. If you see an evidence of grace in someone's life, go ahead and point it out, and not just in your head, but verbally to that person. Some of us wait around until funerals to say nice things about the people that we love. But listen, we can be grateful Barnabas was not that way. And in light of his example, if you can be an encourager today, do it. Exhort, teach, disciple, spur others on in the faith. We need Barnabases in our life, and we need to be Barnabases. Because as evidenced by the church at Antioch, and specifically evidenced by Barnabas, to live out our Christian faith is to encourage other believers in the faith and spur them on in their faith. Third, though, I think we can also say this. To live out our Christian faith is to sacrificially and generously help others in need. This is verses 27 to 30. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now here's what I find really interesting about verses 27 to 30. You have this fascinating account about a prophet named Agabus, who somehow, by the aid of the Spirit, is able to predict a future famine. And yet, that prophetic prediction is not the focus of the passage. Rather, it's setting something else up in the passage. 
The focus of the passage is not on Agabus's prophecy, but rather it's on the generous giving of the church at Antioch. Now, the reason why I find that to be really interesting is because I have all kinds of questions about Agabus. How exactly did he know this? Did the Lord audibly tell him there's going to be a famine? Did the people take him seriously right away? Or did they think he was crazy? Is this something Agabus did regularly? Those are the questions I want answered. But Luke just breezes by Agabus because Agabus is not his focus. Rather, his focus, and the reason why he even tells the Agabus story, is to get to the point which is the giving of the church. They hear about an upcoming famine, and then each of them, according to their ability, sends relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. Now, to understand why that's so noteworthy and why Luke focuses his attention there, there's probably a few things you need to understand. First, the distance between Jerusalem and Antioch was 310 miles, roughly. So these two churches were not close together. And obviously, this was in the age before the internet and before cars and planes and trains. So it's not like the believers in Antioch could just hop on Instagram and learn, oh, this is what's going on in Judea. On top of that, they couldn't just jump in the car and take a quick road trip to go meet the brothers and sisters in Judea. These are Christians they likely never met, never met, and likely never would meet. And yet, they still cared. I think that's noteworthy. But the giving of the church in Antioch is also noteworthy because most Christians in the first century were not well-to-do financially. Now, there were probably some Christians in Antioch who had means. I don't doubt that. But probably most did not. Most Christians living in the first century were poor. And so most of them are giving probably not out of their riches, but out of their poverty. Yep, they still did it according to their ability. That too is noteworthy. The other noteworthy thing here about the giving that takes place in Acts chapter 11 is that the giving that takes place crosses the barrier from Gentile to Jewish people. In the same way that the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ crossed over the Gentile boundary in order to share the good news of Christ, the Gentile brothers and sisters are now crossing back over that boundary to give to their Jewish brothers and sisters in need. So the act of giving from the church in Antioch to the church in Judea displays not only the generosity of the church in Antioch, but also the unity of the big church. Jews and Gentiles are working together to care for one another and love one another despite their cultural and geographical differences. And in all of that, as we reflect on their giving, I think there is a challenge for us. Namely, are we willing to sacrifice in order to help those in the body of Christ who are in need? Are we willing to do so even if we don't know those other Christians? Are we willing to do so even if they don't talk like us or look like us? Listen, I know it's easy to get sucked into our own little world, to think that following Christ is a local thing, a Fremont thing, or a Nebraska thing, or an American thing. But let us be clear, Christianity is a global religion. And when our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine are hurting, and no doubt many of them are right now, we should pray and we should care. And if there's anything we can do to help, we should. When the church is being persecuted in Afghanistan, as it is right now, we should care. We should pray. And if there's anything we, should, we can do, we should. When Christians are being silenced and thrown in prison in China, which they are, we should care. We should pray. And if there's anything we can do, we should. Now, to be sure, hear me, we should care about our brothers and sisters in Christ here locally. In fact, our generosity should begin with, the, with, our generosity should begin with those in this church body. But if our care stops at the city limits or stops within the membership role of this church, then there's something amiss. 
Because to live out the Christian life is to sacrificially and generously help others in the body of Christ, even when they don't look like us, even when they don't talk like us, even when they don't live by us. So this morning, maybe you're feeling the Spirit prompting you to sacrifice and help a Christian in need. If that's the case, let me encourage you, follow that prompting, even if the fellow Christian lives across the tracks or across the ocean. Because to do so, as evidenced by the church at Antioch, is to live out our Christian faith. Lastly, though, and this is the most important, to live out the Christian faith is to first and foremost love Jesus. Let's be absolutely clear. This is the foundation piece for everything else. To live out the Christian faith is to know and love Jesus. Go back with me to verse 21 here. This is the key. And the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. We see the same thing in verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Let me be absolutely clear in saying this. The most important thing about the church in Antioch is that they believed in and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And without question, that is the most important thing that we can say about any church. Apart from a love for Christ, our evangelism means nothing. And apart from love from Christ, our encouragement is nothing too. Apart from love from Christ, our generosity means nothing. All of those things are but clanging symbols unless they are driven by a love for Jesus. When I think back on the Christians who've made the most difference in my life, some of, been, some of them have been really gifted in evangelism, others not so much. Others have been great encouragers. Maybe some didn't do that quite as well. Some have been generous and sacrificial. Others have struggled in that area. But the one thing they've all had in common, those who've influenced me most, are this. They believed Jesus was the Christ, and they loved him with all of their heart, soul, and mind. Now, they were wanting to grow in those areas that they were weak in, but no doubt, the greatest attribute they had is their love for Jesus. So please, do not mishear me today. I'm ultimately not trying to persuade you. Just be more evangelistic. Be more encouraging. Be more generous. No, instead, what I'm trying to tell you more than anything else is this. Look to Christ. Because as we look to Christ, and as our love for Christ grows, it's inevitable those other things will follow. I mean, think about it this way. If Christ died for us while we were still sinners, how could we not be more courageous in wanting others to hear about him? If Christ gave us his spirit in order to encourage us and disciple us and teach us, how could we not be more encouraging to others? If Christ gave everything to set us free from our bondage to sin, how could we not be more generous in giving to others? Hear this, and this is important. We don't share Christ and encourage others and give generously so that Christ will love us. No, it's the opposite. Rather, it's because Jesus loved us that we then share Christ and we encourage others and we give generously. Don't get the order of those two things confused because to do so is deadly. We don't do those things to earn his approval. It's because we already have his approval. That's why we do them. The most important thing we can say about the church in Antioch is they believe that Jesus was the Christ. And because they believe that, and because they love Jesus, they lived out their Christian faith. Now, to be clear, all of this happening was a result of the grace of God. In fact, look at the language that's sprinkled through the passage here. Again, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of believed turned to the Lord. Verse 23 says this, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, 
And so in both verse 21 and 23, we see it's the hand of the Lord. It's the grace of God that explains what's happening with the church at Antioch. The reason why the church at Antioch loved Jesus, the grace of God. The reason why they lived out their Christian faith, the hand of God. So let us be clear in saying this. The response to this passage cannot be, let's try harder to be more evangelistic and to be more encouraging and be more generous. No, instead the response must be, let's look to Christ. And let's pray that the grace of God does a work in us. Ultimately, I think that's the lesson we learn from the church at Antioch. Antioch may be an answer to a trivia question. They may be a church that models for us what Christianity looks like lived out. But more than anything, I think this passage reminds us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And remember, it's the grace of God that will enable us to do anything that we want to do. If we're wanting to grow, it will be because the grace of God is at work. So Fremont, you free. Let me encourage you this morning. Let's live out our Christian faith. Let's share Christ. Let's encourage others. Let's be generous in helping those who are in need. But let's do so knowing that Jesus is both the substance of the good news and also the one who provides the energy we desperately need to live out our Christian faith. So church, let's look to Christ above all else. Let's lean on his grace. And then because we love Jesus, let's live out our Christian faith. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the reminders that we have here in this passage of the beauty of the Christian life lived out. But we know it ultimately starts with the love for Christ. And so I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, I pray that they would recognize their own sin and turn to Jesus in saving faith. And then because of their love for Christ, we do pray that for those of us who are in Christ, we would have a desire to be more generous in giving to help those who are in need. That we would encourage one another in Christ and that we would share the good news of Christ far and wide. But again, we know all this starts with the love for Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to grow there first and foremost. Help us to see and savor the great and wonderful news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and three days later he rose from the dead. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.